Hey everyone, Emily Abadi here. Welcome back to another episode of Hurdle. This week's pod is truly special. In it, you'll meet Amy Purdy, a Paralympic medalist and snowboard champ who is without a doubt one of the most down-to-earth, awesome humans I've ever had the fortune of interviewing. We recorded this when I was out in Colorado at the GoPro Mountain Games, and it was kind of surreal when she walked into my hotel room because I had just watched her clip on Lewis Howe's podcast. I had read her excerpt from Oprah's book, The Wisdom of Sundays, peeking at clips from her time on Dancing with the Stars. Amy's a big deal. In 1999, at just 19 years old, her whole life changed after contracting a form of bacterial meningitis. Doctors gave her a 2% chance of living, and due to a lack of circulation, she lost both of her legs below the knee. The craziest part is that she's so darn thankful for all of it, for making her into the woman that she is today. A lot of people would have had a hard time keeping that same positive perspective that Amy's been able to maintain, and that's why this episode is so epic. In it, we talk about how all that went down, how she got back on the mountain to do a sport that she loved and worked her tail off all the way to the Paralympic podium, scoring bronze in 2014 and silver in 2018. There is no shortage of inspiration to come and also a few tears from both sides of the microphone. As always, check out Hurdle on social at Hurdle Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Email me if you need anything, if you want to say hi, if you've got your own Hurdle moment to share. Emily at hurdle.us. And please, please, when you're done listening to today's episode, take the time to rate and review Hurdle in the iTunes store. It really helps the podcast get some more visibility. Lastly, sign up for the newsletter. Head on over to hurdle.us slash featured, scroll to the bottom and give me your name, your email, and your deets. And that's it. Let's get to hurdling. Today, I'm sitting here with Amy Purdy. She's a Paralympic medalist and a champion snowboarder, a total badass. Thanks so much for sitting down with me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I uh, I have to admit, I'm kind of in awe of this opportunity. Aww. Uh, <laughs> aww. <laughs> I uh, was listening. I, I feel like everyone that I admire has sat down with you, and the fact that I'm sitting here right now in Vail, Colorado, and sitting down with you is just really special. Uh, Before we even really kick this off, can you talk to me about what it was like when you realized that you were in Oprah's book? Okay, yes. (laughs) Crazy (laughs) and surreal. Like that, it's so crazy because I feel like that was like a um, massive, I don't know, not an accomplishment, but for me, just one of the biggest things that I've been a part of and to be thought of um, from Oprah. And she hand-selected who is going to be in her book and to be one of those people in her book. It's, um, you know, I felt like I made it. <laughs> like I did it. Whatever that means, I made it. It's like adult goals. It's so funny. It's like you get on the podium in the Olympics. Right. And that's amazing. Yeah. Like I feel like I can put it on my resume. Like, well, I'm in Oprah's book. So if that tells you anything. <laughs> I also do speaking engagement. Talk to me a little bit about how you got uh, into snowboarding in the first place. 
So I grew up in Las Vegas, which most people don't think of a professional skier or snowboarder coming from Las Vegas, but we actually had ski resorts just around uh, where I lived, actually 45 minutes from my house. We had a ski resort. And so I used to ski when I was small. I was never good at it. And then I started snowboarding when I was 15. And I really just found myself um, when I started snowboarding because in high school, I mean, we all know how challenging high school can be. My sister was a cheerleader and super popular and, you know, dated, um, dated like the head football player and homecoming queen and that whole thing. And so I didn't know, um, I just didn't know who I was. I didn't know if that's what I was trying to do is follow her footsteps and just didn't know where I fit in high school. And I ended up meeting a group of skateboarders who also were snowboarders and artists and musicians. And uh, they took me snowboarding one day and I fell in love with it and I picked it up really fast. And yeah, I just kind of, I found my, my people and then found the space that I wanted to be in. And I loved snowboarding. I loved being outside, being with my friends. I loved that there weren't any rules. Um, you know, like a, like a team sport, there's all these rules and snowboarding. It's like, you can just, you can create whatever trick you want, do whatever you want. So we'd go up to the mountains after school and build little jumps and just play. So, and just play. Yeah. How, how soon, uh, after getting started with snowboarding, did you realize that you were really good at it? You know what? Um, I wouldn't say that I was really good at it, but I was, I was, I was a natural when it came to just picking, picking it up. So some people, you know, have to go through lessons and like you have to, when I teach snowboarding now, I tell people they need four days, like four good solid days. And then you got it. Whereas for me, for whatever reason, I think it's because these guys, all these guys who I had crushes on took me (laughs) up to the mountain and they were like, follow us. And that's it. They didn't, they didn't teach me how to snowboard. They were just like, keep up. And so I remember getting off the chairlift and them just taking off. And it was a powder day. It had, uh, there was a couple inches of snow so I could see their tracks. And I just thought, okay, I'm just going to stay in their tracks. And so I ended up just picking it up by the end of the day. I was carving and maybe not keeping up with the boys, but definitely working my way down the mountain. The things you do when you're chasing a cute guy. Honestly, I know. (laughs) I know. It's so funny. It was full motivation for me. So you're a teenager and you're getting into snowboarding and you start to realize that something feels a little off. Yeah. Well, actually, so all of this happened very fast within 24 hours. So I was a massage therapist. um, And the reason I became a massage therapist was because I wanted to travel the world and snowboard. And I wanted to have a job that would travel with me. So I thought all I need is my hands, my massage table, I can go anywhere. And my plan was to live in different ski resorts and snowboard and massage, basically. And so, um, and I loved my job as a massage therapist. And I was actually very good at that as well. And um, because I, I just, yeah, I realized I enjoyed, I guess, healing, you know, the healing arts and, and helping people one way or another. And so, um, anyways, I went to work one day. I got hired at this amazing spa in Las Vegas, a world-class spa. I was the youngest massage therapist hired. And I went to work one day and I felt great in the morning, just like any 19-year-old would feel. And then halfway through the day, I started to feel really tired. I, I remember massaging this guy and just being absolutely exhausted. And I was thinking, God, this guy is just draining me. Um, and so after I took a break after that massage 
thinking, well, maybe I have the flu, maybe I have a cold or something. So I took, I just went to the lunchroom and took a break, but I started to feel worse. I started to feel like my neck was achy and my back was achy and started thinking that I had the flu. So I decided to go home from work early. And that night I had a temperature of 101. So that's like typical flu-like symptoms. Um, next morning, my, my temperature actually broke. So I was supposed to go out of town with my family, but I just told them, don't worry about me because I probably have some 24-hour flu or something. And that's all we thought that I had. But that afternoon, instead of getting better, I started to get worse. And at one point, I remember... Uh, I was laying in my parents' bed. That's always where I went when I was sick, and they had a TV in their room. So I was laying in their bed, and I was so tired, and I fell asleep, and I fell into the deepest sleep that I've ever felt. Like, I couldn't wake myself up. I kept trying to open my eyes, and I kept trying to wake up, and I couldn't. Um, And then suddenly, I heard this voice say, Amy, get up and look in the mirror. And I immediately opened my eyes. I looked around, there was nobody there. Um, And as I was sitting up, I started to realize that something was really wrong because my heart was beating out of my chest. I was shaky, I was dizzy, but I was so weak. I mean, it probably took me a good like three to five minutes just to get into a seated position. And then I scooted to the edge of the bed, I put my feet on the floor and I stood up and I realized that I couldn't feel my feet. And when I looked at the floor, I saw that my feet were purple and then I saw that my hands were purple And then I looked at my reflection in the mirror and I saw that my nose, my chin, my cheeks were purple as well. So I went into a full panic. At the same time, I felt like I was dying. I knew that I was dying. So um, randomly right then my cousin walked in because my mom had called her to come check on me. And yeah, she walked in, she said, oh my God, it looks like you're dead. And I said, I'm dying. I know I am, I gotta get to the hospital. So she rushed me to the hospital and that was the beginning of a very, you know, intense and crazy journey. Were you kind of keeping it together when you're like understanding what's happening? Or are you just hysterical? I wasn't hysterical. I kept it together, actually. I was like, which is crazy. My cousin, she had no gas in her car. She she was like, I got to go to a gas station. I was like, there's not time. I said, take my truck. Well, she didn't know how to drive a stick shift. And I was like, well, I'll teach you. Like, I was like, whatever we got to do to get to the hospital right now. And I don't know why we didn't think of calling 911. Right. But I just thought it would be faster. Because like, she was already we, there. Yeah, like, let's get in a car and go. And if we break down, we'll figure it out. Um, but on the way to the hospital, I my lungs were collapsing. So I had to, like, talk myself through every breath I took. Like, I was like, breathe, breathe, breathe. Because my, I mean, I was I was dying. I'm, I'm lucky that I survived just that, you know, next hour. So what's happening here? So I was going into septic shock um, because I contracted meningococcal meningitis, which is a bacteria, and it spread like the flu or the cold. So um, just, you know, maybe somebody sneezed on me in the elevator at work and that's how I got it because it's, it's, it's airborne in the sense that, you know, if somebody sneezes or coughs, then that bacteria can get on your nose and mouth and that's how it gets into your body. But the thing is that this bacteria, it's called uh, Neisseria nemingitis, I think it's what it's called, but that bacteria um, is actually very common one in four people are carriers of it. They're just not sick from it because our bodies are immune to it and our bodies know to fight it off. It's almost like staph in the sense that like everybody has staph on them, but not everybody gets sick 
you know, from a staph infection. So it's similar to that um, where it's really rare to get sick from it, and but when you do, it's deadly. And so, yeah, it's something like 85% deadly in the first 24 hours of your first flu-like symptom. And the hardest part with it too is you think you have the flu. So there was nothing telling me that I had anything else but the flu at that point until suddenly I was in septic shock and um, going into cardiac arrest and everything. And so when I entered the hospital, they put me on life support right away. They had no idea what they ha- what I had. They thought I had toxic shock syndrome. Mm. at first. So, you know, they did blood cultures and they had to put all these IVs in me and they ended up filling me up with, um, oh my gosh, 50 pounds of water. Jeez. Yeah. So I went in at 120 pounds and by the time my parents saw me, I was 175 pounds. Uh, so completely looked totally different because I had no pressure in my veins. So they had to just keep filling me with water so they could get medication in me and stuff. And they didn't think I was going to make it through the night. Um, they told my family they needed to say goodbye. So my family brought in like every friend I had and everybody was surrounding me saying goodbye. And I remember thinking it was very, uh, it was very much an outer body experience for me because I remember I was gasping for air and I knew I was dying. Yet at the same time, there was a part of me, it's almost like a part of me detached from my body because there's a part of me that was kind of thinking like all these people think I'm dying, but like I, I, there was something comical about it, which is so weird. In my mind, I was like, all right, guys, like, don't you think this is a little extreme? Everybody's saying their goodbyes. At the same time, I'm gasping for air, trying to breathe. So it was just this interesting, like, outer body, you know, surreal experience. Um, and when does it turn the corner? When are you not dying anymore? Uh, it took a couple weeks. So I, that next week or two was the worst. Yeah. Um, I was put on life support, put into an induced coma. My parents had no idea if I'd wake up again at that point. My spleen burst. I was rushed into the, this emergency surgery and um, the doctors didn't think I was going to survive the surgery at all. This, my spleen burst inside of me and they had like five minutes to get it out or something crazy. And so, um, and I had a near-death experience when that happened. And then um, just all my organs were hemorrhaging except for my heart and my brain. And which is amazing to me, like the most, the two most important organs were okay. And so, yeah, it was very touch and go um, for, for about two weeks there. But then as I started to wake up from this coma, that's when I realized that my hands and my feet were in big trouble um, because of the septic shock that I went into. I lost circulation to my hands and my feet. So my fingers were black. Um, the soles of my feet were black. My feet were purple. My toes were black. Um, And basically, when you're in septic shock, your body pulls blood from your extremities to save your organs. So that's what was happening. And that's why I saw, that's why I couldn't feel my feet. You know, when I woke up that one day, I couldn't feel my feet. I couldn't feel my hands because I was starting to go into septic shock before I got to the hospital. And then it just, they they were doing everything they could to save my hands and my feet. Um, And so I was very aware that that there's the possibility that I was going to lose my legs. And we thought I was losing my hands as well. But I got very lucky that my hands turned around. Um, It's, yeah, it's, it's amazing because the doctor said that 
most likely my fingers were just going to fall off because they were that bad. They were just black. And so to, to have my hands start to recover was amazing, but um, my feet continued to get worse. And so I ended up losing both my legs below the knees and having my legs amputated, well, kind of just above the ankles amputated. It's really beautiful that you can uh, be going through that experience and still have the frame of mind to say that I'm so thankful I have my hands. Yeah, well, I think that's what, you know, got me through some of my toughest days there was gratitude because it could have been so much worse and I knew it could be worse. Like I, not only was I possibly losing my hands, but also my nose was really bad. Like they had a plastic surgeon come in and show me a mirror and say like, we were going to have to reconstruct your nose because it was just black. And so thinking that I was going to lose, you know, part of my face and my hands and my feet, by the time I lost my feet, Honestly, I thought, oh, my God, that was a close one. Like, I only lost my feet. Like, how lucky am I? So it's all about perspective, right? What was it like for you when you got your first set of prosthetics? Oh, so scary. That's when it got real. Yeah. So I would say when I was in the hospital, I was really positive. I stayed really strong, never cried, never shed, shed a tear. In That's a- unbelievable. I'm like crying almost sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think part of that was, it, I would have never known that I was that strong, but I think part of it was I was on survival mode. So you set your emotions aside and you're doing whatever you got to do to just get through the next day. And also everybody around me was crying. Everybody around me was heartbroken. And, you know, my parents went through so much and seeing their daughter lose her legs and they had no idea what my life was going to be like and I wanted to let them know that everything was going to be okay like I I felt like I kind of needed to be strong for everybody else too so I think that was part of it was just but also being grateful once again I thought oh my god I almost died I'm so grateful okay I can handle this and at one point I remember thinking well this happened to the right person because I know I can handle it which is crazy I didn't even know what I was dealing with. What's that saying? It's like God only gives the tough stuff to the people he knows right. that can handle it. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's um, that's how I felt. Um, not that it was easy. Not that I wasn't completely scared. But I think I had I was forced to be in the moment. And when you're in the moment, you can't you don't have anxiety about the future. You're just trying to get through moment to moment. So that helped me. Definitely. Emotionally. So the yeah. doctors come in with some legs. Well, so I did see some prosthetic legs when I was in the hospital. Right before they amputated my legs, a prosthetist came in um, to introduce himself. And he was this young surfer guy. He had lost his leg above the knee in a motorcycle accident. So it was nice. They sent me this like young, active guy so that I could see that life goes on. And he brought all these different legs and was trying to show me what, you know, prosthetics look like. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, so I had seen them and then basically I didn't get fit for my legs until after I left the hospital. So Mm -hmm. I was in the hospital for about two and a half months. Mm -hmm. And then I, uh, I'd say within the next like week or two, I, I was getting fit for my prosthetics and then I stood up in my legs for the first time and talk to me about that. Yeah, they're so, 
Well, first of all, when he walked them in the room, I was devastated because I didn't know what I was expecting. I thought, okay, I'm going to get my legs and go. Like, thanks. See ya. And he walked in with these legs that were just, you know, pipes bolted together and these really bulky sockets, which is like the part that you, um, that's customized around your limb. Yeah. And I, I just thought there's no way those could be my legs. Like as he was walking towards me, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like these rubber feet and the feet were like this yellow rubber foot. And I just thought, oh my God, like these have to be temporary. This, there's no way that my legs are going to look like that the rest of my life. But um, so that was a lot to wrap my head around. And then putting them on for the first time, they were so painful um, and so like confining. I, I felt claustrophobic because you know, your, your calves and like, basically I have 10 inches below the knee. And so that's where like, they create this socket that you step into and lock in. And, um, but like your calves and stuff aren't used to being confined like that in carbon fiber. And, um, I just thought, oh my God, this is going to be so hot. And not only that, so you, you kind of lock into the legs and then you have to pull this like heavy sleeve over your knees. And then if, if your legs don't fit right, you have to pull, put these wool socks on and, I'm living in Las Vegas and I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be the hottest, you know, thing ever. And yeah, when I stood up, I just thought there's no way I'm going to be able to travel and snowboard and do all the things that I wanted to do. Talk to me a little bit about snowboarding because I feel like that must have been something that was kind of on your mind from the second they were like, we aren't going to be able to keep your legs. Yeah, that was on my mind. Absolutely. From that moment on for sure. I, when I go back into my medical records, pretty much every day I'm asking the doctors about snowboarding. Like, <laughs> so when can I snowboard again? Have you seen somebody with two prosthetic legs snowboard? So what do you think about snowboarding? And um, what was the climate of the sport at that time? Was anyone with prosthetics snowboarding? No. And actually it was very new. It was very new because there wasn't even a big female uh, competitive space. There were some, I, I looked up to some amazing women like Barrett Christie was like my idol in snowboarding, but it was very, very small just for women in yeah. the first place, let alone for someone with a disability. So I, you know, I'd never even seen anybody with a prosthetic leg, let alone snowboarding with a prosthetic leg. So I really had to kind of figure it out myself. But um, I think the challenge of that, of wanting to snowboard again and trying to find a way is what it kept me moving forward. And it, when I was in the hospital, actually, when they, when they wheeled me into the surgical room to amputate my legs, I was so scared, um, had no idea what my life was going to be like, could not wrap my head around what I was going to be dealing with. But I gave myself three goals. And one of them was that I had never missed a season of snowboarding. So I wasn't going to miss that season. So I, I just, I knew that I would snowboard that year and try to figure it out. And then another goal was that when I figure all this out, I wanted to help other people. And the other one was that I, I wasn't going to feel sorry for myself, that no matter how things go, how bad things get, that I wasn't a victim and I wasn't going to feel sorry for myself. And so setting those goals really helped me that way. When I woke up and my legs were gone, you know, I still had these goals that I had set to move forward. And so snowboarding was one of them. And I started doing a ton of research. Um, when I got home from the hospital, the internet was brand new at that time, kind of, because we're talking like maybe 18 years ago. Um, and so I started 
you know, just kind of Googling, which I don't even know if it was Google at that time, but (laughs) (laughs) typing in like (laughs) amputee snowboarder, snowboarder with prosthetic legs, disabled snowboarder, like trying to figure out what kind of feet were out there because I knew I needed a special type of foot because the feet that I was walking in had zero movement at all. And with snowboarding, you actually use your ankles and all the little bones and balancing, you know, parts of your feet so much. And I couldn't find anything. Um, I ended up trying to snowboard in just the feet that I had and it was disastrous like my ankles wouldn't bend and I fell and at one point my legs came off and there's just all these hurdles you know that you have to just try it to figure out what what it's going to be like and were you just putting your prosthetic legs into traditional boots and yeah. bindings yeah wow. so I just put my normal boots on my normal board my normal setup um you know, at that point, wouldn't have had any idea of how to customize anything because I hadn't even tried it yet. So I really just needed to start somewhere. And that's actually a good message that I, I try to get across at some points as well. It's just like, you got to start somewhere, right? You have to like just begin, even if everything's wrong, then you can figure out what to do to make it right. So um, yeah, so I just went up with my sister and a friend and I remember walking in my snowboard boots and it felt so weird and just every bit of it felt so foreign. And I think when I got on the chairlift and going up to snowboard for the very first time is when fear set in for the first time of what if I can't do this? Like what if I am going to find out in the next five minutes that this is basically impossible? And that's pretty much what happened because, you know, it was just kind of disastrous. My ankles didn't bend, my legs didn't stay on, it was painful, but it also gave me something to work with where I thought, okay, if I if I can figure out a way to keep these legs attached, if I can figure out the right ankles or feet that move in the way that I need to, then then I can do this again. And were you seeking out specialists in this in prosthetics to help you accomplish this? So when I went home um, from snowboarding that day, that's I started doing research and, and calling every adaptive ski school, asking them if they've ever worked with an amputee snowboarder, which at that time they said no. And they said most of the time, if you're a double leg amputee, we put you in a mono ski. And I thought, well, I'm not a skier and I want to use my legs. I don't want to take my legs off and sit in a mono ski. Like I want to snowboard. And so that was the answer that I got constantly was like, no, we've never, we've never worked with an amputee snowboarder before. And so then I started calling leg manufacturers and asking them and, you know, just whatever I could do. And my kind of, I guess, breakthrough was my brother-in-law had seen this guy on, there used to be this uh, kind of action sport TV show or TV channel called Blue Torch. Okay. Do you remember Blue Torch? Yeah, a little like bit. Action, all action sports based. Well, my brother-in-law was watching that and saw this guy snowboarding. And then at the bottom of the run, he pulled his pant leg up and he had a prosthetic leg. And so he videotaped this and sent it to me. And um, I watched it. And as soon as I got finished watching it, I Googled Blue Torch TV and there was a phone number and I called. And the first guy who answered, I was like, okay, you guys just aired somebody who has a prosthetic leg and snowboarded. Do you know what his name is or do you know what kind of leg he uses? And the guy who answered, he said, oh, that's Thane Mahler. That's my best friend. So here's his phone number. And so I called him. Like, So within minutes of seeing him, I called him and I I was like, hi, my name's Amy Purdy and I have two prosthetic <laughs> legs and I saw you snowboard. And 
all I want to know is what kind of legs you used. And he ended up hooking me up with this company who I ended up sending a letter to as well. Um, like he kind of introduced me to the company and then I sent this letter. And in this letter I said, I don't know if a double leg amputee can snowboard, but if they can, I'm going to be the one to figure it out. So if you give me your feet, then I can test this out. And feet are expensive. Um, prosthetic legs are expensive. They're, my leg setup is $30,000. Wow. So to get a pair of legs just kind of sent to you is, you know, a really big deal. And so those were the first feet that I snowboarded in. They, they, they weren't really good. They, they didn't really work that well for me. I can see why they work for a single leg amputee like Thane Muller, but for a double, I, it was still very challenging for me to ride in those feet because they had this kind of spring. And every time I tried to get onto my toe edge, it would spring me back. Mm. And so I knew at that point I needed my toe edge to collapse, like, and, and stay there, not spring me back. And so then, but, but what his feet allowed me to, to do is meet another, well, meet another snowboarder who had a prosthetic leg and then go up and play around a little bit and do a little bit better than I did before. So mm -hmm. it's baby steps. And then I ended up actually making my own pair of feet to snowboard in at that point because I knew what I needed. And so I went to my prosthetic shop and basically told them this is, you know, this is the flexion that I need and, and this is how it has to feel. And so we ended up taking different parts and pieces from other legs and just getting really creative. Like we made these Frankenstein feet because there was <laughs> duct tape, pink duct tape holding stuff together. And I put these wood wedges under the heels, which allowed me to get onto my toes a little bit better. And we took this ankle from this other company and turned it backwards and it allowed my ankle to collapse in the way I need it to. Wow. And so those feet are really what changed the game for me. I feel like I would have those feet like in a case. <laughs> they're they're actually in the Smithsonian. Oh my Yeah. And no big deal. Yeah, they're in the, in the Smithsonian. I know. It's kind of crazy. I'm like, I'll never get them back. But I've got pictures <laughs> of them and you can visit them. <laughs> That's outstanding. Yeah. That's outstanding. Okay. So you get some feet that do everything you need them to do. Right. For the most part. Right. Um, fast forward and you're snowboarding for a while again and you are in a position where you understand that the Olympics are kind of in your reach. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about how that all kind of unfolded. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that I didn't think about ever, you know, being an Olympian until after I lost my legs. But also I think, too, snowboarding wasn't a part of the Olympic Games when I was younger. So it wasn't something that I really aspired for. And then um, I – but I saw I saw a niche that needed to be filled. I saw that snowboarding wasn't in the Paralympic Games, and I also saw that there weren't many people snowboarding with prosthetic legs. And so um, I would go to different events to try to meet people, different like disabled ski events, and everybody would be skiing, of course, and I'd be the only snowboarder. And I wanted to be able to, I guess, give the option and let people know you can snowboard on two prosthetic legs or a prosthetic leg if you want to. And so. I ended up meeting my husband um, while I was on a snowboard trip in Crested Butte, Colorado. And um, he had this background in philanthropy and his mom actually helped us start an organization called Adaptive Action Sports. And the whole idea was to, you know, we figured out how to get me involved in the sports that I loved and figured out the types of equipment and we wanted to help other people do the same. 
So we were a big part of helping this sport grow in the first place, like kind of creating this adaptive snowboard community because there were people out there around the world who were snowboarding with a prosthetic leg or two. We just weren't connected. So we kind of started it as this place, the organization, we started it as this place where people could connect and learn about different feet and different tips and tricks. And we would, um, we would create events to, to pull all the adaptive snowboarders together. And we started getting snowboarding into different competitions. We got adaptive snowboarding into the United States of America Snowboard Associations. Um, uh, yeah, like competition, I guess you can say. Right. Um, they work with all able-bodied athletes, but we created an adaptive snowboard division to that. And the idea was just to help grow this community of adaptive snowboarders. And then my husband was able to get snowboard adaptive snowboarding into the ESPN Winter X Games. And we ran that, I believe, for three years. And that was a huge platform for us because we were riding on, you know, the biggest snowboard course in the world with all the pros and able to show what we were capable of and what we were able to do. And then we were a part of pushing um, to get snowboarding into the Paralympic Games. And so that the idea of getting snowboarding, adaptive snowboarding into the Olympics and Paralympics was an ongoing process for quite a few years. Like that was a goal to get snowboarding into the Paralympic Games at some point. And in 2011, we found out that that we had done that. What was that like? It was out of the blue, to be honest, because we were turned down so many times. And at one point we were, we were sure that snowboarding was going to be in the Paralympics because there were world cups that were happening at this point all over the world. And at that point too, I was showing up with other adaptive snowboarders. We didn't have sponsors. We were just, you know, flying to New Zealand to compete in a world cup and flying to France to compete in a world cup, just doing this all out of our own pockets without any real support or help. And, but, but there was a lot of us and you were supposed to have to get snowboarding or any sport into the Olympic games. You need, I believe eight countries involved. They need to have athletes from eight countries. And we had that. So we were convinced that we were going to get snowboarding into the games. And, um, the next games were in Russia. And so even this kind of, you know, Russian, organizer came out and we were just waiting for him to tell us that we got it into the games. And the next morning, a press release went out that snowboarding wouldn't be in the Paralympic games. And so we all had our, you know, our hopes up for a bit there. And then I'm not sure what happened because about eight months later, all of a sudden we got another press release that said snowboarding was in the 2014 Paralympic games. So that was crazy. That was exciting. Of course, everybody, all the adaptive snowboarders were on the phone with each other. Like, oh my God, this is real. Like this is like now our sport is, is going to be official. And so it only gave us 18 months to prepare for the games. And at that point I was, um, I was snowboarding competitively, but on a pretty low level. Like I didn't, I didn't, my feet were great, but not good enough to really grow as an athlete. I needed to have different equipment and I kind of struggled with the feet I had made to, to do what I wanted to do. And so outside, yeah, all of a sudden I felt like I've got to be an Olympic athlete in 18 months and ended up just, um, you know, focusing all my energy that direction. And literally started training every day and built like 20 pounds of muscle and got these new feet and just um, started competing everywhere I could and, and made it to the games and 
came home with a bronze medal and you say it so yeah. casually it's like I and then I added 20 pounds of muscle like <laughs> well, it just happened I went to I, Kmart and I picked them up happen. yeah what do you have to do besides snowboarding to kind of make those kind of gains um I, so I did a lot of weightlifting because I also I'm naturally pretty thin and having two prosthetic legs you burn up to 60% more calories than the average person. Wow. So Because you're um, constantly lifting you're constantly that extra weight. working, yeah, and, and using other muscles to compensate. So I was really thin. I mean, I was like 105 pounds or something. And um, and speed is your friend. And, and the more weight you have, then the faster you go on a snowboard. And so I wanted to just be the strongest I could be. And all of a sudden, sponsors started coming out of nowhere. I got sponsored by Coca-Cola and, um, gosh, got sponsored by Kellogg's and some of the biggest Olympic sponsors chose me, um, to sponsor, which was amazing. And all of a sudden I just realized, well, I have all the support in the world to be the best that I can be. And I'm going to use this time to be the best that I can be. And so I also though, at that time put a lot of pressure on myself because I had been a face to the sport and, uh, and now this is our opportunity to share it with the world. And I didn't want to let anybody down. And so there was just a lot of pressure. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of pressure to represent. And and also you, you want the Olympic and Paralympic Committee to, to know like this was a good idea getting right. adaptive snowboarding in here. Like we know what we're doing. We're pros. But well, I think it's really beautiful that you're saying like they chose me. Like out of everyone they could have sponsored, like mm-hmm. they chose me. Well, like take a step back and understand that you've been putting in the work. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it didn't just happen because. Right. Out of the blue. Exactly. Right. So you get on the podium, which must have been outrageous. And then a few years later, you do it again. Yeah, I think so. The first time was just really emotional because all these years went into learning to walk, learning to snowboard, trying to figure my legs out, growing the community, getting it into the games. And all of all of those emotions kind of came to me as I was in the start gates for my last run, like yeah, it makes me want to cry Yeah, <laughs> because it was just like, I felt so grateful and like, oh my gosh, if, if something doesn't exist, you can create it, you can build it, you can make it happen. So I was just really proud, proud of myself and proud of all the other athletes involved and um, proud of what we built and to, to try to keep those emotions together when you're competing is really hard <laughs> because your emotions can kind of break you down and I needed to use them to make me the strongest I've ever been, you know. And it's so beautiful that you have that kind of inner dialogue with yourself because I think for a lot of people during really tough or stressful times, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, But I think, too, when I go back to my hospital days, I learned to compartmentalize because I had so much going on. I lost my legs, lost my kidneys, lost the hearing in my left ear. That's something we didn't touch on. That Was it two years after you lost your legs? That I had a kidney transplant? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I'd say a year and a half after. Okay. And I lost my kidneys through the whole, you know, meningitis process because – yeah, my kidneys were hit really hard. And then my dad gave me one of his kidneys about a year and a half after That's my beautiful. 21st birthday. That's insane also that he was a match for you. Yeah, we were almost twins um, as far as matches go, which is really rare for a parent and a child. Usually you get 
kind of half the genes from your mom and half the genes from your dad. But my dad and I were something like five out of six match and a twin is six out of six. That's unreal. So it was amazing. And um, yeah, so yeah, there's just a lot of emotion that went into, you know, that last run that I did. And um, I'm so grateful. I came out with the bronze medal. I was the only double leg amputee competitive rider. You know, I'm riding against girls who have their legs, but have some sort of impairment, but have their legs or have one prosthetic leg. So at that time, I was plenty happy to come in with, you know, bronze medal, just making the podium. And, um, but I, it's different that time than it was this time yeah. for Korea. So for Sochi, I put a lot of pressure on myself to represent and to represent the sport. And I was quite um, stressed out because of that, like mm. constantly working on my legs. And I'm a perfectionist and they weren't good enough. And I could feel what I needed my legs to do, but I didn't have the equipment to do it. And so I felt like I was just... I had this athlete inside of me that wanted to blossom, but my legs wouldn't let me. Mm. And so that was frustrating for me. Whereas this time, actually going into the games, I I didn't put that pressure on myself. I've, I've gone on to do so much outside of snowboarding as well that for me, snowboarding is just one thing that I do. It's not everything. Um, and I went in with a much more open heart and um, gave myself time to work on my legs and took the pressure completely off and ended up doing better than ever, really. So um, it's kind of amazing how that happens. It's kind of amazing how that <laughs> happens as we both like sit here wiping tears from our yeah. face. I'm trying to be sensitive of your time, so I'm going to ask you two more questions. First question, best advice that you have ever been given in your career? So... Outside of snowboarding, I'm a motivational speaker. And that is, that's a bit more of a career for me than even snowboarding. I speak year round and then I snowboard kind of half of the year. And so I think one of the best pieces of advice I was given was from a speaking coach. I was invited to do a TED talk and worked like crazy on this talk, worked for three months on this short eight minute talk. Once again, put tons of pressure on myself. and. I had never really shared my story before. Like I'd never, it was so hard for me to say I have two prosthetic legs or I lost my legs. Like I'd break down and cry. It was just this weird sensitive thing for me. Mm. And I remember I was backstage and I was talking to my speaking coach and I said, oh my God, what if I cry? And she was like, well, if, you're, if you cry, you're meant to cry and the rest of the audience will cry with you. And it's all about being vulnerable. Like um, the more vulnerable you can be, the more open we can be with each other and that's where people connect and so I ended up going out and doing this speech and my voice cracked and I had tears in my eyes and I look in the audience and everybody else is crying as well and that speech ended up going viral and it completely changed my life and I ended up going into a full international corporate speaking career which has um, changed my life. How does it feel to connect? I'm breaking my own rules because now there's three questions. How does it feel to be able to connect with so many, whether it's young women or young men as well, who have uh, disabilities of their own and to be that kind of mentor for them? Yeah, it's amazing. But I think what's even bigger than that is the people who reach out to me, I'd say 50% have disabilities, 50% don't have physical disabilities, but maybe have gone through something in their lives. Like, even a divorce. I mean, people who reach out to me are like, your story helped me get through some of the toughest times in my life, whatever that might 
be for them. And so it's amazing. I mean, and once again, going back to being vulnerable, if I didn't share kind of my deepest, darkest spaces, then I wouldn't be able to connect with all these people who are dealing with similar things. So uh, when it comes to speaking or writing my book or even my social media, for me, I'm, I'm constantly trying to, I guess, wipe off the the shell and the facade and like show what's really underneath and the struggles and the challenges and give insight on what one thing or another might be like. And it may have to do with my legs or it may have to do with some other challenge in my life. And that's what's allowed me to connect with so many people. And be so authentic. You talk a lot about the pressures that can come with being an athlete of your level. What has been one of the most difficult what some people might label as failures that you have encountered that has taught you the biggest lesson? Um, I mean, I feel like with snowboarding, there's constant failures. <laughs> like you come in last in a World Cup or you just, you know, there's, I'm not the best in the world when it comes to snowboarding. I'm really not. Um, but I do the best I can with what I have. And oftentimes that's what gets me ahead is just using everything I have. And so... Um, I don't know if I can say like, because there's nonstop failures. I don't think I can really pick one moment that changed my life. But I will say that outside of snowboarding, I had a, a major missed opportunity that felt like a failure, but that ultimately, um, you know, one door closed and another door opened. So I had been I've played around a little bit with acting. Before I became a competitive snowboarder, I lived in LA and I was taking acting classes. And so it's something that's kind of always been a part of me of what I've wanted to do. And then, um, let me think, oh, it was before Sochi. It was just about six months before Sochi. I got this opportunity to work with Samuel L. Jackson on this big film. Um, Casual, with, really. Yeah, and I was flown out to London and worked with Warner Brothers for a month. I, I was supposed to go out there just for an audition, ended up staying for an entire month and working with all the cast and um, and basically got this role. And this role was made for me. It was amazing because I was athletic and I was fit and I, I knew how to use my legs and I was actually doing a lot of martial arts on my legs and um, backflips, all this stuff. And it, it all played out really well with this character that I was supposed to play and it's called the movie's called Kingsman and it, so there's I think they're on the second edition of Kingsman that have come out but anyway so I got this role and I was like oh my god this is my big break I remember flying home first class with champagne and just being like oh my god <laughs> this is it like my life is amazing and it's happened and then I come home um we have these special legs made and my bags are packed and I'm supposed to go back out to start filming and they let me go. Uh. And it was massive uh, amounts of emotion. I was so heartbroken and I had no idea, you know, what I thought that's it. I lost my big break. I can't imagine a better role for me than this like athletic role that I was supposed to be in. And I remember I was at my prosthetic shop and my prosthetist said, well, it just means that there's something better around the corner for you. And I thought, yeah, 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 thanks. But no, I don't think it's going to be any bigger than like this massive blockbuster film. And But there was. There was something bigger around the corner for me, which was Dancing with the Stars. And I cry every time <laughs> I see your routine with Derek Huff. Uh, oh, my God. 
That's it. People cry even when on our happy dances, like with the happy, you know, our salsa dances. People are like, I cried. Yeah, but only human was like. Yeah. Yeah, that one was, that one was amazing. And I had no idea when I went on the show, we would do something like that, like that we'd actually dig that deep and be that vulnerable and create something that emotional. I thought I was going on and learning to cha-cha, you know, (laughs) all of a sudden it was like, I had to share like, once again, kind of the deepest parts of my life. And um, it was amazing. Was it fun to be a beginner again at something? It was. Yeah, it was. But it was also, once again, tons of pressure. I mean, you're in front of millions of people every week. It was like doing the Paralympic Games every single week. Like you've got one shot. Don't mess it up. Everybody's watching. You know, if you don't do well, you're out. So there and I put a ton of pressure on myself because I thought I'm I was the first double eight amputee to ever do anything like that and to be on network TV doing something like that. And I thought I need to represent what the possibilities are. And I'm still trying to figure out week by week what the possibilities are, but I I didn't want to let anybody down. I wanted to be able to show what's possible, but I didn't even know what was possible until I was in it doing it and had no idea that, you know, we'd almost win and make it to the end and it would change my life forever once again. <laughs> it's a, it's nice to have a lot of those moments throughout our yeah. lives, right? Uh, you have one chance to put one last Instagram into the world before they completely shut your social media accounts down. You have the opportunity to say one more thing to all of these people that are following you. What is it that you say to them? Jeez. Um, I think I would say that you could be anything you want to be at any time you want to be it. Like, there are no rules, you know? I mean, it's kind of cliche that we're the only ones that put limits on ourselves, but we are. It's like anything's possible if you work hard enough, if you're passionate enough and you believe. I wish beyond wishes that we had so much more time to sit here today. Um, Thank you so much for taking a time out of your morning to hang out yeah. with me. Thanks Amy. for coming all the way out here. Yeah, to man. Talk to me. Dude, <laughs> anytime. <laughs> the next time we'll have to go do something really active and fun. Yeah. Please take a moment to leave a quick review by clicking the link with the description to this episode. We all face multiple hurdles in life. I want to hear about yours. Reach out to me at emily at hurdle.us. Connect with the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at hurdle podcast. And uh, Amy, why don't you tell me where they can find you on social media? On social, I have the same handle for Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and it's Amy Purdy Girl, G-U-R-L. I love that. Amy Purdy Girl. (laughs) (laughs) I'm at Emily Abadi. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.